You don't inhale it. You don't drink it. You don't inject it. But make no mistake about it. Digital media addiction is worse than any other addiction that's hit our country or our world. Worse than alcohol, worse than cigarettes, and even worse than opioids. Why? It hits every age and it hits us throughout our culture. It affects us physically, emotionally, socially, unless we make a difference now, unless we become aware of it and change our process, we're in for a scary future. If you don't believe me, listen to what I've got to say with Dr. Alan Blum, who's been one of the biggest proponents and advocates for anti-smoking efforts, and now he's turning his sights onto digital media. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. And do me a favor, stick around afterward. Two things. One is rate and review us so that more people can listen to this podcast and learn from these great experts. And two, I've got a special offer for you. So listen and see what I've got for you. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert sourced, expert vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Dr. Alan Blum, one of the nation's foremost authorities and patient advocates on smoking. Since 1998, he's directed the Center for the Study of Tobacco and Society, which comprises the world's largest collection on the history of the tobacco industry and the anti-smoking movement. He's given more than 2,000 presentations on smoking in all 50 states and at 12 world conferences on tobacco or health, written more than a dozen textbook chapters and over 100 articles in peer-reviewed journals, and created 12 museum exhibitions, including When More Doctors Smoked Camels, A Century of Health Claims in Cigarette Advertising. Dr. Blum is a recipient of the Surgeon General's Medallion, presented by Dr. C. Everett Koop, the first National Public Health Award from the American Academy of Family Physicians, and an honorary doctorate from Amherst College for a career dedicated to ending the tobacco pandemic. In recent years, Dr. Blum has been focusing on what he sees as an addiction perhaps greater and more dangerous than smoking. That's digital addiction. You can learn more about Dr. Blum and his work at the Center for Study of Tobacco and Society, and that website is csts.ua.edu. Alan, thank you for being here. This is such a critical topic. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's really a a great opportunity, and not only for us to get together every now and then because we've known each other so long, but also to talk about something that I know it sounds uh, extreme, but I think has, has the potential to be even more devastating uh, than uh, cigarette smoking. Well, I honestly, you know, there's a part of me that almost views this as the demise of society. I mean, it is just so pervasive, every age, every, you know, level, in every way, the the disconnect that this is creating for human culture. You know, I I spend uh, still, you know, every day working on aspects of the tobacco pandemic, and now, of course, everybody and his uncle and aunt are, are calling about uh, vaping and so forth, which, again, really uh, is, is about an addictive process that, that we need to constantly try to fend off. But you, you wonder, what's this guy's connection and why does he think this has anything to do with being on your smartphone all day? Well, just a quick story. Back in uh, 2000, when the British Medical Journal reported that teenage smoking was going down, I read further down into the article and saw that one of the reasons was that the kids were spending their disposable income on cell phones. And I'm thinking even then, well, gee, I don't know about that. And and lo and behold, about seven years later, the smartphones came in. And literally 12 years after that, we have our kids in this country on their phones upwards of 10, 11 hours a day. That's almost mind-boggling and impossible to, to get your head around for something that didn't even exist uh, a dozen years ago. Well, and the addictive nature of it is almost like, you know how they say like you, you do crack once and you're addicted? I mean, there seems to be something about digital media and the digital and it's, world. It's, more, it's, more, it's almost more elegant than that because you're um, not inhibiting yourself in any way from getting near your, your smartphone. And it's not just adolescents, it's all of us. There's this um, to- a term that was coined about five years ago. I think it's called nomophobia, fear of low battery life or losing your cell phone <laughs> even for a, a, a minute. And this is the kind of dependence that um, we see with, with uh, addictions that we would all be more frightened of ever having. Well, you know, it's so true. And then we'll, we're going to take this, this topic apart. But let me just say, 
you know, I'm so used to having my phone with me and we so believe it as a safety thing, right? I want to be able to reach my kids if they're in trouble, if I'm driving someplace. You know, the, I remember recently I didn't have my phone with me and I was going on some long drive and I was so paranoid. Meanwhile, when I was in high school, my friends and I would drive down the Jersey Shore, no phones, no connection whatsoever. We'd go up skiing. Like the the need for this lifeline, I don't know what it is, if it's the fear of something might happen or if it's the addiction that's that has this absolute dread if it's not well, around. I, I, I can trace that because I remember... Not, not ever having a cell phone and, and looking at people beginning in the late 1980s was the first time I saw someone constantly on his cell phone. I was in Australia and um, it was a friend of mine and he was constantly interrupting and going off on his little cell phone and I actually asked if I could see what he was doing and I called home to New York and I was so impressed by it. But I, I, I realized then he was, this guy was really not walking around without it. And then I resisted getting one for many, many years, well into the 2000s. But I did see that there was a benefit to uh, the safety when my wife was driving from the airport at night alone. And that, that certainly is a comforting thought. And then I finally broke down and got a flip phone, which I only recently gave up about a month ago because I was going off somewhere and figured, well, maybe one of these days I'll need an Uber. But that just shows you, I donated the flip phone, by the way, to the Smithsonian. Love it. But it, it, it shows you um, that I, I really resisted every step of the way, and now I have one myself. Well, I, got a, I got a nasty note from the, the screen app, apparently. It said, not, not, that, you've only used, not that you've used this uh, eight seconds today, but you've only used it eight seconds today. You've let them down. Well, I think it's important to note. I mean, we're about to go on a little adventure and talking about the the insipid dangers of this technology. And it's not just the cell phones. It's all the screens and it's all the digital technologies. But let me just acknowledge, I mean, there's benefits to this. This isn't just an evil thing, that it connects people. There's a security and a safety thing. It allows, you know, it's given us access to so much information. So this is not to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, let's go back to the land of pens and pencils. That, You know, I think that's true. I mean, uh, where would we be without, uh, in our pajamas, being able to order a book from Amazon? I mean, no, I, I think that, that um, there's always upside, downside. And uh, that's the book I've always wanted to write because I don't think there's uh, entirely black or white in anything, or, or all good or all bad in anything. I think the automobile is a perfect example. I don't know if we would accept uh, a product that, that kills upwards of 50,000 people a year um, in, in spite of all the, the, the conveniences that it did. Um, so it, it's, it's what we accept, and we, we constantly believe that anything that moves us forward is good. All right, so let's let's go back now to the beginning. So this is going to sound like a crazy thing to start out with after you and I have been talking for five minutes. But can you define digital addiction? Because I want people to be aware. And I was just telling you that I wrote a blog this week that will publish this week about my looking at my own behavior and my own interactions and realizing, you know, I think that I've got elements of this digital addiction. So can you define what that means? And, you know, addiction well, let's almost be clear. Addicted. We don't want to get too sensitive about words, whether we call it addiction, habituation, or dependence, or being hooked, that certainly applies to whatever you want to call them, cell phones, smartphones, digital media. And all the standard signs of addiction are there, daily or near constant use, in the case of the average American teenager, about 10 hours a day. A third of teenagers sleep with these things, a third use them within, more than a third use them within minutes of going to bed, um, a third wake up in the middle of the night to check them. I mean, these are, these are mind-boggling statistics on, on something that didn't even exist a dozen years ago. And these uses, so this isn't like they're, they're doing their homework till they go to bed and they're researching something. This is, they're texting, they're snapping, they're scrolling Instagram, social media, games perhaps whatever like this is i'll call it time filler stuff exactly 40 percent are using their digital device within five minutes of going to bed that means 
and they and and a third are checking their devices within five minutes of awakening, and a third are awakening in the middle of the night to check it. And I don't know whether there's the same third, but when you do these surveys on adolescents, that's what the numbers show. And you've spent a lot of time with adolescents, but I think the important thing is that you know there's there's the the teens are obviously they jumped on it really quickly, but then there's the the end that talks about babies are being handed. Ba- if, if not baby versions of iPads and iPhones and smartphones, but you look and people are putting screens in front of their toddlers, like they're we're inculcating them very early. But adults, well, there's even uh, baby's first smartphone that you could, if you Google baby's first smartphone, you can go and order it on Amazon, and it's recommended for uh, infants six months and up. It literally has uh, the dial of the telephone. You can dial into twelve different. Uh, numbers to get various sounds and uh, you can even program it to dial your home number so but let me say when I was little I had baby's first phone and you pushed a button and you got a bell and you and that was that was part of child like that was part of some basic you know Skinnerian conditioning of teaching a baby that you know they had control you push a button and you get a reward so right. what's these, more, these, what's these worse are, about baby's first iPhone than baby's first, you know, dial phone? Well, this is like baby's first wooden block with electronic gadgets that don't stop blinking and making noise. It's it's not anything peaceful. It's not anything that you have to uh, figure out. It's it all. It's it's another example of passivity. You press a button and you are being bombarded. So you're not really learning how to do anything. Because it's so easy and so accessible on baby's first iPhone. I think that, that, again, every single aspect of other addictions is present in the smartphone addiction. The, the most specific is withdrawal, in addition to the constant usage. So every single college student that I know of gets FOMO, or fear of missing out. You stop using it for a few minutes, and you're anxious, to the point where you might not even be able to think about anything else. So in a college class, some professor did an experiment where a third of the students were not permitted to bring their smartphones into the classroom. Uh, A third could bring them in but could not use them. They could put them on the table, couldn't use them, and a third could use them any way they wanted. So which did the best? Obviously, the, the group that didn't have the smartphone at all. Which did second best well? There was a tie. So even just having it on the table made you anxious enough just looking at it. Could I have gotten a message? Could I, do I need to check it? And, and that's where we are today, where we have no attention span whatsoever. And we're anxious. We're anxious to the point of not even being able to think about anything else. So is it part of, I remember when I was first starting out in advertising, and I did a presentation. This is when commercials used to be 60 second long, then they were 30 seconds long, and now the 15 second commercial came in. And just the whole pace of messaging that has gone on our brains. Like it's, as I said earlier, well, like it's this multi, the whole digital revolution and the digital addiction is so multifaceted. So that that's, we, a good, that's a good analogy. I think if you go back to the, 50s where they talked about uh, what subliminal advertising, uh, where they, they had the, the naked person in the ice cubes, you know, the, so that it, it, there was a lot that we were accusing advertisers of doing. But I do know that when cigarette advertising was banned from the airwaves, that the industry didn't skip a beat because they came immediately back the very next day as sponsors of sporting events with the logos of the brand names on the on the billboards at key camera angles so that the Marlboro Grand Prix auto race uh, which I taped and gave to a medical student to look at had over 5,000 verbal and visual mentions of Marlboro in a single 90-minute telecast well I think there what did I think you had written something in one of your articles that in the 1970s or something like that that People were getting about 500 messages a day, advertising messages. And now, I saw 10,000, but I, I think that's even low. I mean, compared to with everything that's going on. Like, has there just been this utter shift in our brains, although evolution might not have been able to catch up with it, there is such a bombardment of lights, bells, whistles, etc., 
that we our whole pacing of life is just accelerated like crazy as a result of all this. And what would be some of the most extreme examples of that? I don't know whether you've seen people playing uh, Candy Crush Saga on their, their iPhones while waiting for a bus. Um, we don't think for ourselves anymore. We, don't, we, we kill time by using these things for whatever reason. We don't even nod at the person next to us. Um, but these games, uh, they draw in young and old alike. Uh, they have they're colorful. They have uh, they're advertised on your you know iPhone. They have little mini rewards that make you feel good enough to keep playing, and uh, then they sell you. They can sell you additional playing time. It's it's extraordinary. Uh, these things are are truly predatory. And I don't know whether you've heard of online casinos that do not involve playing for money. You're simply playing for the the companionship with other gamblers, and you, you, you compare whether you win or lost, and then when you run out of time, they make you buy another package. And you, there's no cash reward. It's not like real gambling. So this is perfectly legal. And Facebook is getting a 30% cut of this because it's all done through these social media platforms. So what's the, is it, and I've seen several things, but I want you to talk about it a little bit. Why is it so addictive? There's, and I've read about how with every light, with every text, with every, you know, win, just like at the gambling casino, there's a dopamine hit that our brains are being bathed in feel-good hormones. And that's really part of what we're getting addicted to. It's not just, you know, a, a, a gem on a screen. Is that correct? Right. I think very much like the mechanism of smoking and lung cancer, as Dr. Coop used to say, I know when I turn on this light and it, it lights the light bulb up in the ceiling, that, that there are electrons that travel from the light switch up to the filament that lights the light bulb. I don't need to see the electrons to understand that we know this, that there's no doubt whatsoever. And we know what causes the uh, uh, digital media addiction. It's the, the dopamine brain reward system. So dopamine, you make it and you release it from some area called the ventral tegmental area. That sends the dopamine down the reward pathway to other brain areas. So uh, in response to the dopamine, the uh, amygdala um, or the amygdala, whatever, however people pronounce it, that, that tells you that your phone is good. Then there's the prefrontal cortex in the front of your brain that, that focuses your attention on the phone. There's something called the nucleus accumbens, and that controls holding it. And then you've got the hippocampus that ties it all together by remembering the good feelings that you have with the phone. And all this is so happening. You have all these hormones. You've heard of oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins. They're all co-released with dopamine, but dopamine is the main chemical that the, the little rat is getting every time he presses the lever to release the food pellet. Right. And, and it's funny, in my blog, I, just to, to try and get people to aware of it, because again, they may not even be aware or conscious as they're using the phone and what's going on. You know the feeling when the postman brought a, a package at, at the right. holiday time? And you go, oh, there's a package on my step. Right? It's that exactly. rush of feel good. And that's what's happening every single time with, with these equipment. It's, it's scary even more so than you think. First of all, we, we, we rationalize. I, I use mainly email. I don't sit with my phone at all. Uh, I don't like the impact of staring at a one-inch screen or a two-inch screen all day long. And, and by the way, uh, one of the physical effects of digital media usage, in addition to walking into walls as you're texting while walking, is, is uh, what's called computer vision syndrome. When you're staring at these little light bulbs all day long, it's taking a toll on your vision. So I think you'll be reading more and more about uh, visual uh, disabilities from excessive uh, use of smartphones. But, you know, it's even worse than, than we, we like to think when we do email, we're scrolling through and we're saying, oh, no, I don't have to open that one. I don't, oh, oh, I'm going to open this one. And we justify this by 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 fooling ourselves into thinking that when we, the ones that we open are the ones that we really want to see. But what most of my email consists of, and I have the largest email file in the entire university, I'm told, 
are people trying to get my attention. And we are in the attention economy. And I probably get more unsolicited emails than anyone. And I have to go, I have to read these things and look at them. And spam and, and junk mail filters don't, don't do a good enough job of getting rid of these things. No, you have so to do I what have, I do. Delete, delete, delete. Right. And that's, <laughs> that's, our, that's our rationalization when we think, oh boy, we're getting rid of all these things. But we shouldn't have to spend our time doing that. So um, what happens is that actually since January of 2018, I have received over 523 and counting uh, personal invitations to submit uh, my wonderful research to these various journals, which are called predatory journals. And in other words, somebody in Russia or the Ukraine or whatever is trying to lure me into paying money to publish my articles. But 523 in barely a year and a half gives you an idea of the thousands and thousands and thousands of unsolicited emails that we're getting. Oh, yeah, without a doubt, again. And the thing that, so here's a question for you. With this rush of um, this hit of dopamine and hit of hormones that's happening with every email, with every whatever transaction online, are our brains changing, right? So is it, is it, and is it irreparable or is it, temporary like are they just being temporary temporarily rewired and we need to rewire it back or is it irreparable damage that's being done wished i had some good news but it doesn't look good i think we're not just getting addicted to the chemicals there are terms that i had never heard of there's one called synaptogenesis the formation of new synapses between neurons and the nervous system when you use the same neurons in, in this case, the dopamine-releasing neurons in, in the various areas of the brain, that causes new synapses to, to form, and, but it strengthens the pre-existing ones. So that if you, it's just like uh, only doing one thing all day. You're, you're not really um, forming the, the, the new neurons that might teach you something new. That's my way of interpreting it. We don't even know anything about how digital media are affecting children's uh, synapses. They call it synaptic pruning. That's the maintenance of, of frequently used neurons or destroying the ones that we, we, don't, we don't use very often. Whether that's good or bad, I don't think anybody knows for sure, but we are seeing changes in the brain from merely by using digital media. The more people are using it and relying on it, the more it is changing our brain without any question whatsoever. Well, and the interesting thing, and I've, I've had different, so many different conversations with family counselors about children's depression and anxiety, um, with um, drug, you know, about drug addiction and things like that, you know, that we've, we're in this society where the, everything is so short term. We get immediate gratification. We, we, people are thinking very short term. And I think part of this where, you know, does, does the changes in our brain and the brain chemicals and the synapses is that part of this formula where people aren't like we don't have the attention that they're not able to sit and think deeply and broadly because it's these very kind of short short you know point to point answers right so that they're losing this complex this ability to think in complex rich ways Yes, I think as we're ferreting out all the bad news here, the one thing to keep in mind is what it's like to simply sit and read a book. I, I, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're talking right near Halloween, and I happen to pick up The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. I can't tell you what brilliant descriptive writing that is. I can't remember the last time I read the, this meticulous descriptions of, of a farmhouse. And, and where Ichabod Crane goes to try to court his, his, the young lady that he'd like to marry. I, you're transported into something that I don't think anybody uh, of a certain age truly appreciates or understands. I walk around the University of Alabama campus. You don't see people reading books. You, you see um, about 90, 95% of people wired. And that means you know the earbuds and the device in their hand. And when I, when I see someone who's not wired, my line is to say, hey, why aren't you texting? 
and, and I'll catch them off guard and they'll look at me for a second and then they laugh and then we have a good conversation. I think the kids are marvelous. There's, there's a lot of talented people, but they're insulating themselves, they're isolating themselves, and they're not thinking for themselves. Even just playing music, even walking around with the streaming music in their heads, that, that misses an opportunity to simply relax the brain. Yeah, and now, I want music, music can be soothing, but not 24-7. You don't have to walk around with something that says, don't talk to me, I'm shutting you out because I have to listen to my music or whatever it is that I'm listening to. And I think that's what we're doing under the guise of, of everybody's got to go to college. I'm not so certain with online learning, which is another two-edged sword, that we need college campuses anymore if nobody's going to talk to one another outside their own social circle. Wow. I have different issues with college and whether or not how many people need it or not, but wow, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting concept. But another podcast. Well, well, I think, too, to come back to the safety issue, we're, we're grappling with, um, the in the last five years, pedestrian deaths have, have soared. They had been going down for 100 years. Now pedestrian deaths are going up, not just in New York City, but everywhere. And you watch the, the students crossing crosswalks oblivious to the fact that the drivers may be texting. They're texting, and they assume because they have the right of way that they won't get hit because they depend on the drivers who might themselves be distracted, as we know many are, from not killing them. And it's so I've been working with a colleague on a, a, a simple sign on every crosswalk, you know, heads up and say hi, so that we don't look down and we don't simply act like we're in our own world. And that's, that's a kind of defense mechanism you can almost understand in a hectic city like New York, but you can't understand it in the South where everybody's supposed to be so friendly. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some more. So we've, we've kind of woven in and out of different aspects of it. We've woven in and out of the, the impact on the brain. We've touched a little bit on some of the, the effects on the body, but let's go through some of those, you know, what, what this digital addiction or, or dependency is doing to our bodies and ourselves. So, you know, you mentioned here social damage. So, yeah, it's really, it's pulling us away from social interaction. Nobody looks each other in the eye. People are trading off. Did you know they'll text someone, but they won't actually pick up the phone and call, which drives me batty in business. Yes, um, we're 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 seeing um, medical students who've never really uh, done anything other than take uh, computerized multiple choice tests, uh, not knowing how to talk to people. We're looking at in our own field in medicine, where physicians are now spending more time. Uh, working on their laptop with the patient in the room than talking to the patient and making eye contact. And I've had many patients say, you know, she never looked up. He didn't even look at me. He, he was on his, his little computer. And it's, it's um, uh, under the guise of making medicine more efficient, it's separated. Uh, it's created a big gap between physicians and patients. Fortunately, I have a scribe. So um, I'm able to, to devote my full attention to the patient, and it's made an enormous difference in my life. Well, and I think you touched on an important point here also. We started out talking about smartphones, but this really is technology all over the place. So it's the electronic health records that, frankly, I know a lot of doctors don't like having to use them. They would much they rather talk to a patient, but they're forced to sit with their head down in the computer and put in all their codes for whatever it is that they, they're finding. Well, I think whoever is to blame for the, the requirement that uh, offices have electronic records in order to have uh, better uh, reimbursement from insurers is the fact of the matter is it's not, it hasn't been the panacea. It hasn't, to my mind, enhanced the practice of medicine. It's made uh, medical notes, you know, 10 times longer than they need to be. My first 21 years. Uh, of life were uh, detailed in a medical record that's four index cards. That was my father's way of keeping track of all my vaccinations and uh, cuts and bruises. Unfortunately, today we are filling medical charts with gibberish because we worry about lawyers and we 
pretend that we have to document everything for research purposes or to please whatever government agency or Blue Cross is going to reimburse us. Yeah. Well, so it's so it is it's electronic health records and it's um, you know computer screens and it's you know te- instant messaging versus picking up the phone and actually talking to someone or getting up and walking down the hall to speak to someone face to face. You know, I'm this thinking. This is extended, by the way. I just I just wanted to, it's right. extended to nursing. You know, if there's ever a bedside profession, the most comforting, humane profession there is, it's nursing. And yet, what's happened to nursing? Um, they go by the bedside and they're on their, 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 their all the, the vital signs, they're, they're putting it into the computer. Yeah. Patients over and over again say, you know, the nurses never came in and talked to me. They, they just came in with their machines. Yeah. And the thing that's important, when you touch someone, you also get dopamine and oxytocin and you get to feel calm and good. You said that's, it. That's the irony of it. Physical touch, looking at someone's eyes, Taking that moment of human connection is what release what those hormones were created for. And then you know, there's a, a brilliant professor at Harvard named John Stilgo, one of my true heroes. He was the subject of a 60 Minutes uh, segment about 15 years ago called "The Art of Observation." And what Professor Stilgo has done for well over 30 years. In other words, at least 20 years before the advent of smartphones, is to take walks with students at Harvard, simply to look at things. He points out that we don't go out for a run anymore, we go out for cardio purposes, and we have our, our Fitbit, and we, in other words, we can't even enjoy a good run, we can't even enjoy a good walk. We don't notice things, we're so busy, uh, you know, fitting this into our busy schedule. and. He's a, an amazing individual. All the more, if you watch this and Google this segment on 60 Minutes, keep in mind that it was all done before smartphones. In other words, he was concerned that college students were only good on their math and verbal scores to get into a good college and doing 50,000 extracurricular things to pad their resume. They weren't just out there enjoying things and yes. relaxing and taking life in. Yeah, no, it's true. It's all in order, too. Teach yes. the te- right exactly. It's all in order to. Um, so let's go back to some of these other w- ways that this um, digital addiction manifests in people. So uh, talk about. I want to talk about movies for a second. So we were talking earlier about the in-depth thinking and conceptual thinking and being able to ponder stuff. You know, remember Alfred Hitchcock? He his movies were all about. He would never show something gross. He would never show the murder because he said the imagination can always make it worse than whatever it is that I'll show you. But meanwhile, I have not seen, I don't intend to see The Joker as a perfect example of this new movie, where it's, from what I understand, so graphic and so violent. And the, you know, the, the visual responses and the visual, you know, again, what we're spoon feeding to the brains versus allowing the connections to occur and the imagination to occur. Well, you know, uh, the, the common argument against what you're saying is, oh, this sounds like the, the congressional hearings on comic books back in the 40s and 50s, that they were going to be the end of the world because kids were being exposed to violent images. And then, um, really, it was television. Oh, look at these gangster shows and the untouchables. And, and by the way, the, the good guys all smoke filtered cigarettes and the bad guys had the old regular comics. You know. <laughs> but, and then it was... When, when video games came out, oh, this was going to take uh, these kids away from their schoolwork. Well, maybe all of them were true to some extent in their era, but I don't know whether you've seen some of the predatory, violent video games. Um, it, no. And, and it, I think what was the, the one where you, you, you have to steal a car, Grand Theft Auto, you know what I mean? I, I, I don't know um, that that's all that great, and, and people can argue with me, well, you're just taking away pleasure, but I'm told that Fortnite um, is such a thing that sucks you in that kids aren't going to school, they aren't eating. I don't think these are imaginary consequences. Um, and, you know, the irony of liberal Hollywood, you know, uh, progressive Hollywood being responsible for a lot of this stuff is, is something that people haven't come to grips with. 
a lot of the violence, a lot of the, the gory, uh, a lot of the pornographic crap that we uh, are getting is is purportedly from some of the most progressive and liberal-minded people. You know, and that that's what bothers me. And we can rationalize anything. Oh, I I couldn't agree with you more. Again, another discussion for another day. But the ivory tower that they stand in when they complain about the Me Too, you know, the, on the Me Too movement, and they complain about sexual abuse, and they complain about the drugs, and they complain about the the gun violence, and yet if you look at what they're producing, right, they're totally. Demo, you know, demonstrating it, encouraging it, ce- celebrating it. You know, but, it's it's. I once worked on a but uh, a uh, uh, a TV script. I was called because I was interested in chemical waste dumping, and I had written some pieces on a love canal up in Buffalo, where this chemical company had uh, dumped uh, chemicals for decades, and then it seeped up through a new housing development, and kids' bicycle tires were burning up, and their sneakers were catching fire. And then they realized there were all these chemicals seeping up through the ground. And so I got called by the producers of Battlestar Galactica to, in, to in advise them on a script in which the, the aliens would get sicker because they had a, a faster metabolism than the Earthlings. And it was sort of fun to go out to Hollywood and be there, and I had to sign all sorts of documents accepting responsibility for accuracy. And one thing I learned, because I met with a censor, and she was a very stern person, and apparently... I learned from them that they put five times as much violence into these uh, programs because they know the censor is going to take out a certain amount. And that's pretty much what I see going on is that people cry censorship when they are criticized for their violence and sexual content when they know very well what they're doing. And I don't think they have to do that. But under the guise of freedom of speech and censorship, uh, we're being exposed to a lot of unnecessary violence. Well, it is. And violence. And again, let's go back to just the basic. You, you talked about how um, the games, you know, that, that you're hooked and that these people will kind of ignore their lives because they're so absorbed in the games. Well, don't, there is a, a gaming disorder now, a, a specific psychiatric diagnosis. Well, and I was reading articles about how, you know, they're teaching the the upset, the the way to program the computer screens and to program the phones and to program the apps to encourage the addictive nature of it that you know nobody out there should should be naive enough not to to think that this is just happening by accident the programmers know exactly what they're doing and they know what colors and they know what patterns and they know all of it to suck them into the realm well let's go to the other end of the uh, the the spectrum where you and I would think that we want to read rather than jump to conclusions. So um, we'll, we want to read the articles, and we don't want to just take it for granted. Or, or, for instance, on this podcast, we don't want to just accept everything I say, but let's go to the original source. So when we attach articles to our Reddit stream, um, people don't read them. They still just look at the titles. They, they, nobody, nobody takes the time to delve into things, and they simply jump to the conclusions that they claim they are trying to avoid. Yeah, right. Well, again, back to the short term, the lack of depth, the lack of, lack of patience, the lack of thought that's going into it. So here's an interesting stat that I saw. We all know how enormous Amazon is, how enormous Netflix is and Twitter. I don't know how many billions of users there are for all those three. I read that porn sites get more visitors than the three of them, Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter combined. Yeah, I mean, you, you can talk about our base instincts and, and what this has uh, uncovered and uh, how, how evolution maybe has brought us back full circle. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, we, we tend to look the other way on, on a lot of issues, and then we wonder why, and then we pay millions of dollars to do research on something that's very, very right. obvious. Well, but uh, it's it's instant gratification and uh, zero attention span combined, I guess. Yeah, but again, I mean, this again, trying to for, I want people to realize the enormity of this digital chasm, like it's touching every piece of their lives. So let's talk about well, the. Well, let me give you something that's maybe the scariest thing of all. You and I can talk for an hour, and we can hear other conversations, and the New Yorker and the Atlantic and everybody and his uncle 
has written about the dangers of digital media. Uh, no question people are aware of it. But you would have thought by now that there would be an advocacy group, a real one, a national one, that, like Greenpeace, that everyone would recognize. And there is one that's masquerading as such, and it's called Common Sense Media. Why do I say masquerading? Because it, it gives reviews, it guides parents to what media the kids should be watching. It, it gives you know, <laughs> uh, praise, and it criticizes, and it, it says, no, this is something your kids should stay away from. You think that at least is a, is a good effort, right? No, because these parents are way too interested in babysitting with a screen. Well, it turns out, who do you think common sense media is funded by? It's funded entirely by the, uh, the major media corporations, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, of uh, Reddit, ABC, NBC, CBS, those are common sense media. There is no consumer advocacy group that's really defending uh, our right to not be addicted by digital media addiction. Now, meanwhile, there's, it's taken an enormous emotional toll on society. Rates of depression, feelings of isolation, feelings of inadequacy, increased suicides, mass shootings, all of this people tie to digital media yes no question um i i just it's 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 something that that we again um we we, we're accepting because we're trying to say it's the other guy that's their problem it's not me and uh just one anecdote in 19 by 1941 we knew through hundreds and hundreds of articles in medical journals what cigarette smoking could do to you. Dr. DeBakey and Dr. Oxner wrote a piece with over 400 references in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1940 on smoking and lung cancer. But wait a minute, why did it take then another 24 years for the Surgeon General's report to come out and why 50 years later do we still have 480,000 Americans dying of smoking? Well, when did physicians get involved? They didn't really get involved until the 1980s and 90s you know, through groups such as the ones that I started. But the reason why they didn't get involved when we knew in the 1940s was because two-thirds of physicians themselves smoke cigarettes. So a lot of the things that we're bemoaning aren't going to get solved until we ourselves acknowledge that we are part of the problem and we ourselves have some of the same problems. Which is where, so this has to be grassroots. So let's talk about what people can do and again i didn't get the point before we talked about kids we talked about teens but adults have gotten as addicted they jumped right into the addiction as well again it's not something that had to form as a toddler adults have also become consumed with it even as adults i watch 80 year olds i have to laugh i watch i watch my mother i watch my mother-in-law i watch um you know all sorts of people i'm hanging around with a bunch of 70 and 80 year olds often and I'm watching them all on their phones just as badly as the 12-year-olds are. This well, you know, I, I, I'm in the first TV generation, and I can't believe I grew up with a television set in my bedroom. I watched the, the uh, assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald while lying in bed. Um, there's no question that, that uh, television, the visual medium, changed everything. I'm sure there are still a few people who might recall, I, I don't know if it even ever existed, that, that people were complaining that radio was getting kids to, to sit at listening to the radio rather than doing their homework. But the, the fact of the matter is we've taken television and we've exponentially uh, glorified it through the di digital media devices. And we do online shopping, we do texting, we do everything online today and and i think that's the origin of the problem we've got to decompress we've got to get outside our lives are virtual lives today we're not outside walking around as i'm not doing right now um we're 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 not um powering down we're not uh, getting proper sleep i think the single biggest toll probably taken by um digital media addiction is not just anxiety and depression but lack of sleep and um, and we're now getting our body images from these things. We, we're, we're very self-conscious. We're very immature. Uh, we're looking at, at women in particular in, in college settings.
who can't walk 10 feet without checking their devices. It's, it's about as scary as anything I can say. Even when I, I worked a lot with adolescents on cigarette smoking, they never carried around the cigarette all day long and took hits every five seconds. Do you think people will realize it again? Like, so you can't just say, you know, every 40 minutes, take a 10 minute break for you, from your phone or your screen. I mean, you can That's because correct. of your eyes, right? You can say, well, give your eyes a break or give your body a break and stretch and all that. But I mean, like, how you think we'll get to a point where people will realize that this is this is, you know, made them a prisoner of their own lives and that they will then have a backlash on their own. The same way we're going farm to table and organic and all of that sort of thing, moving away from high tech. I think there are some hopeful signs, such as in France, where now uh, cell phones have been banned in schools in uh, elementary and, and secondary schools because they found that the kids were not going out for recess. They were not playing anymore out in the playgrounds. They were sitting around uh, texting one another. So that's a hopeful sign to me because somebody finally put her foot down. And the education minister in France uh, last year finally put her foot down. I think that the notion of helicopter parents having to be in constant touch has not um, been met uh, well by university leaders uh, which have become businessmen. I mean, b universities now are big businesses. They don't want to uh, hurt the feelings of, of their, their customers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you now have, you know, basic people doing whatever they want in classrooms and vaping and, and texting and so forth. Um, there's no respect in that regard for what it is that we were supposed to be doing in higher education. I mean, we have some brilliant students doing brilliant work but I don't think that respect uh, that, that, that you show when you're not constantly ignoring other people while using your, 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 your cell phone at a bus stop or a crosswalk or just walking across campus is, is a, a good thing. I think we used to have university presidents who were national leaders, and now they're just lemmings. They're just like everybody else. There's only one university, as far as I know, believe it or not, it's Liberty University that has created a Wi-Fi free zone. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a professor named uh, uh, Sylvia Freyd has created a, a digital wellness center where you, you chuck your smartphones out the door and you can play dominoes or checkers or just sit there and talk or read. I know that sounds absurd, but you know this, is, this should be a given on the majority of campus space rather than... Um, Basically, you know, it's almost like every space has been turned into a smoking area all over again. Right. Well, I think, you know, as we said, this is so big and so pervasive, and it's going to have to come grassroots and one individual at a time. And, you know, the whole point of our talking today was to help people realize the insipid nature of it. Yes, it's an amazing tool. Yes, it's created a vast amount of opportunity and resources, but we have to control it and not let it control ourselves and you know like dr still go still joe is that still go his course we're slowing down and looking at the world you know we have you know it's 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 just the elements that the professor still go at harvard says that uh people who've looked at leonardo da vinci say you know leonardo was was the odd man out he he was uh illegitimate he he couldn't read he had dyslexia he thought differently from other people he was bullied he was gay. Um, we didn't talk about cyberbullying. We didn't talk about the trolls that have uh, gone on social media and made everybody's life miserable. They hide by their anonymity. You know, that's one step removed from the, the, the shooters and so yep. forth that are craving attention. But, you know, I think the good news is that a lot of these things um, can go away if we decide we're not going to be spending all this time if we you know, hour by hour by hour, reduce our digital media usage. Yeah, well, and again, and not only that, want to connect to humans. I'm going to start, what was it, what did you want to put on your signs at the university? Look up and say hello? Uh, heads up and say hi. Yeah, I, I literally, I, I think I want to start a social media, just say hello. Let's just start with saying hello to people. You know? Well, uh, you know, about five years ago, I got asked to speak to the library school, um, because I, I, had, I hire, I employ many of their students for the Tobacco Center and um, in, in helping me organize this vast collection. 
and and create exhibitions. And while walking over across the quad to give this talk, I'm thinking, you know, what about what am I going to say and so forth. And I noticed not one single student uh, even glanced at me, and mm. they were all immersed in their devices. So, I mean, I could have walked nude across campus. I might have appeared on Instagram, but, you know, I, otherwise nobody noticed. That would be a so great I, experiment. I, I, I came up with a slogan, looking up. Yeah. And it's a perfect slogan for a library school, but why not for entire universities? And I think seeing at every crosswalk, heads up and say hello, or heads up and say hi, it's not just a, a social issue, it's a safety issue. So if we started safety first, I think then people will say, well, maybe I can realize that there are other advantages to not using this every second of the day. Love it. Dr. Alan Blum, you and I could talk for hours and hours, as we often have. Thank you so very much. Anyone that wants to learn more about all of your work is csts.ua.edu. Thank you very much. Love your interview style, Sarah, and thank you, and I appreciate Will's efforts and, and everything that Bottom Line does. Awesome. Thank you. I'm talking to Dr. Alan Blum, one of the foremost experts on nicotine and digital addiction, about the unspoken dangers of digital addiction. It's not smoked or ingested, so it's assumed to be safe for people of all ages. But the data is showing otherwise, and Alan is out to increase awareness of the physical, emotional, and social dangers that our growing digital addiction is creating for our world. It's a social catastrophe in the making. Alan has been providing Bottom Line's readers with the wisdom that no one is talking about with regard to addiction dangers for many years. His insights appear regularly in our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, which is filled with information from America's leading experts on not just brain health or emotional health, but on all aspects of your life, including living a disease-free life, travel, insurance, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. <laughs>